Well, have your Bibles ready this morning. You see in the bulletin that it says selected scriptures, which means we're going to be looking at a few of these together, not just one passage. And the reason for that is because we do what we normally do when the sun begins to shine for the next two months. We turn to our summer sermon series. And so that is what we are beginning uh, this morning. This is when we draw our attention to the theme that we've had for the church for the year. And the theme this year has been discipleship in community, with the emphasis on that word community, togetherness. Building on our discipleship theme from last year, when we looked at one-on-one, one-on-two, three, discipleship, and the discipling of others, to now focusing on our need for one another, not only to personally grow into the image of Christ, but our need for one another to carry out our calling to bring Christ's gospel into this valley. That is what discipleship is. We grow in the Lord, but we also evangelize the unbeliever. And this emphasis on community is key because everything in our individualized society today works against it. And we know that from experience. We value our me time, right? We love the fences in our yards. We are quick to withdraw into our iPhones, our individual phones, and isolate ourselves from others. It's the desire for our own personal autonomy, our independence, independence that has certainly seeped into the way we think about our Christian life. We've all heard the statements, maybe some of us have even said these, all I need is God and my Bible. Or how about this, Christianity is about my personal relationship with Jesus, just about my personal relationship. And when you see this from a biblical perspective, you see those statements are far more to do with our self-centered pride than they are to do with what the Bible or how the Bible describes the Christian life. So here's how the Bible describes the believer in the New Testament. The New Testament does not describe the believer in isolated, individualized, personal, call it terms. No, there is community language, community language. Believers are beloved brethren, so we're members of the same family. We're not spiritual orphans on our own. We are fellow workers, fellow citizens, fellow heirs. Think of the images for the Christian. Christians are members of the body of Christ. That emphasizes our unity with Jesus, but it also highlights our necessary connection to one another. Think about Ephesians 5. We are together the bride of of Christ. There's only one bride. It's made up of all believers. 1 Peter 5, we are together the flock of God. So yes, we're individual sheep, but we are not sheep that wander the fields alone. We are sheep that together make one flock under our chief shepherd. 1 Timothy 3, we together are members of the household, the household 
of God. Again, family member language. We share the same name. We share the same father. We have the same brother, our brother Jesus. And in each of those descriptions, you cannot help but see the community fellowship togetherness dynamic. It is true we belong to Christ individually, but we also belong to one another. Sinclair Ferguson is right. He wrote this, Christ wants to create a people, a community, not merely isolated individuals who believe in him. This is why one author has written this, a huge threat to healthy discipleship. Again, define our terms. This is a threat to growing into the image of Christ. A huge threat to bringing the gospel to this valley. A huge threat to healthy discipleship is isolation. That's the threat. It's being that lone Christian who doesn't need others. That's a stunted believer, not a growing believer. The threat is being that rogue Christian who doesn't need the body of Christ, who sees who doesn't see the value of the church, the community of God. The threat is being the believer who withdraws from God's people. You might try to justify it. There's hurts in the past from God's people. Maybe there's fear of others knowing who you truly are. Or maybe you just justify it away because of plain selfishness. You're not willing to give yourself for the spiritual growth of others. The greatest threat to your discipleship, a threat far greater than any unrighteous law a government leader can pass in our state or in our country, the greatest threat is withdrawing from God's people and treating the Christian community at best as optional or at worst as unnecessary. It's not for you, you just don't need it. But in the words of another author, community is central to our identity as Christians. There is no biblical support for personal, autonomous Christianity. The Father, Son, and Holy Spirit have eternally existed in relationship, in community with one another as one God and three persons. God is a relational being who created us relational beings so that we could image him. So community is a part of our being. It is sin that isolates. It is the gospel that unites us and restores us back into fully, I guess, the image of God that was marred at the fall. Gospel joins us together in relationship, in fellowship. Again, to quote one other pastor, by becoming a Christian, I belong to God. And we amen that. But now here's the statement, and you better amen this too. And I belong to my brothers and sisters. Okay, it wasn't as loud as the first one. (laughs) My being in Christ means being in Christ with those who are in Christ. This is my identity. I ask you, is this your identity? 
This is our identity. If the church is the body of Christ, then we should not live as disembodied, community-less Christians. But that is easy to do, isn't it? That is easy to do. To live as a disembodied Christian, to live our own lives outside of God's people. Especially in the context in which we live. There's the busyness of our life. There's the size of our church. We're in a society that prides individualism. That's one side of the coin. Add to it our fallenness, our desire to guard ourselves from others. We want to hide our sin, we want to cover our failures. We want to project an external self-righteousness to others. Well, you bring all those factors together and you have the perfect storm to isolate yourself from your brothers and sisters in Christ, to isolate yourself from those in this room and become that autonomous, rogue, community-less Christian. That Christian that has either no ties to your fellow believer or superficial ties. That's also community lists. Superficial ties. That's the Sunday morning only ties. That's the only time you speak to your brothers and sisters is when you greet them for that 15 seconds after the first song. Right, that's community lists. That's living the Christian life on an island. But... You have God and your Bible. So I want to counter that mindset this morning. We begin our summer sermon series by offering five warnings, five warnings for the isolated Christian. And again, you can be that isolated Christian and still be in this room. Five warnings that highlight the danger of an autonomous, individualized faith. Five warnings to those who either have no ties to your fellow believer or, again, superficial ties at best. Five warnings. Let's begin with warning number one. Warning number one, beware. Beware. Isolated Christianity leaves you helpless when you fall. Isolated Christianity leaves you helpless when you fall. And fall we will. Mark it. All of us are vulnerable to temptation. No one here has been glorified yet. And if you doubt that, just look in the mirror. That is not what your glorified body will look like. At least that's what I'm praying for. <laughs> Listen to Galatians 6. You can turn there. It'll be on the screen. Galatians 6. We'll look at verses 1 through 3 or 4. We're told this, brethren... Brethren, just notice the family, community language Paul uses. Brethren, even if anyone is caught, the word means overtaken, in any trespass. So it speaks of a time in life when sin overtakes the believer. It's when we drop our guard, when we fail to remain vigilant in our holiness. And just note this, this is not speaking of deliberate or planned sin. That kind of sin requires a different response from God's people. That's the Matthew 18 response. But this here is sin that surprises, sin that catches 
up to us as we're fleeing from it. And we've all been there, we will be there. Now, what kind of sin could Paul be referring to? It's multifaceted, certainly, but it can be personal sin against us. Back in verse 20, in 520, we have some sins listed. Outbursts of anger, dissensions. It could be personal sin. In chapter 5, verse 15, it can be sin that hurts tremendously, sin that bites and devours one another. And yet what is to be our response as God's people, as brethren, as family members? It is not to retaliate in anger. It is to not pile guilt upon the person. It is not to shun them or avoid them. No, it is to restore them. You who are spiritual, you who walk by the Spirit, the fruit of the Spirit we'll look at later this summer, you who are spiritual, restore such a one. The word restore here is used to describe the setting of a broken bone, the mending of a ripped fishing net. The call is to bring that brother or sister who has sinned, and again, maybe sinned against you, but to bring them back into the family, to seek them in their failure, to call them to confession and repentance, and then counsel them to see why they've sinned and how they've sinned and how to battle that sin better next time. Why? Well, at least one reason is because we all have sinful blind spots. Finish the verse. We do this, each one of us, looking to yourself so that you too will not be tempted. We all have been overtaken by sin. We've all stumbled in our Christian walk at some point in our life. We've all need to be restored back And so in love for our family member and recognition of our own weaknesses, realizing our unity with one another, Paul calls us, verse one, to restore in a spirit of gentleness, literally with humility, the opposite of haughtiness. We let go of our offended pride we care more about the body of Christ and we pick our fellow believer up. We restore them back to the harmony of the body and then we comfort them in their godly sorrow. That's the calling that we have. Continue verse two. We bear, we carry, we share the load of one another's burdens and the burdens here specifically would include the weight of that spiritual failure of our brother, sister, that has just been committed and pointed out to them and repented of. We bear that burden with them. We bear the burden of our repentant brother or sister's guilt. How do we bear that burden? Well, we remind them of the full forgiveness of sin they have in Christ. 
bear the burden of their sorrow by reminding them of the joy of their salvation. We bear the burden of their sinfulness by reminding them of the righteousness of Christ that's been credited to them through faith. So we bear their burden with them. We come alongside them. That's how we restore them. And why do we do this? Why do we do this? One word, because we love them. We love them. That's verse two, as Paul concludes the verse, and thereby fulfill the law of Christ. What's the law of Christ? John 13, a new commandment, a new law I give to you, that you love one another, even as I have loved you. That's the law of Christ. So we bear their burdens, we forgive them, we restore them as Christ forgives us. So this is our calling as believers. This is our calling as a family. Again, why? Because we all fall into sin. We are all overtaken at some point with sin, which is why Paul warns, verse three, for if anyone thinks he is something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. He leads himself astray. Just read it again. If anyone thinks he is something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. Well, by application, that's exactly what the rogue Christian does. He sees himself as something. He sees himself as above reproof. He refuses to acknowledge his sinful blind spots. He believes he can live the Christian life alone. He deceives himself into thinking he is superior to every form of temptation. And yet the truth of the matter is that kind of thinking is nothing less than self-deception. That is the proud heart rearing its ugly head. So bring it back to the warning. The danger of isolated Christianity is our pride. Our pride blinds us to the reality of sin within ourselves. When we isolate ourselves, we have no one to restore us. We have no one to carry the burdens of our failure. And thus we must beware. Isolated Christianity leaves us helpless when we fall. There's a second warning. Second warning we are told. Warning number two, beware, isolated Christianity leaves you foolish when you think. Isolated Christianity leaves you foolish when you think. I draw this warning from two texts, one an Old Testament, one a New Testament text, one a proverb. We'll begin there. Proverbs 18 states this. He who separates, he who isolates himself, seeks his own desire. That's clear. Speaks of the one who thinks he knows it all. And thus he has no need for godly counsel. No need for godly friendships. No need for Christian community. No need for the church. 
Well, note the danger in store for that kind of person. He thinks himself to be wise, but he's actually a fool. Because a fool seeks his own desires. A fool is driven by his own lusts. A fool only wants to do what he wants to do. You have a word picture here. It's powerful. Finish verse one. The isolated man is the one who quarrels against all sound wisdom. So he's left to his own thoughts. He's left to his own experiences. He's left to his own knowledge to interpret the world left to himself to make sound decisions. And so he defies, that's what the word quarrel means here. He defies, he fights against it. It is a word picture. He's like a dog that snarls and shows its teeth when it's angry. And what is he snarling at? Verse one, sound wisdom, godly thinking, God's purposes, God's ways. Continue in verse two. This man is called a fool. A fool does not delight in understanding. Again, a fool thinks he knows it all. He thinks he has it all figured out. He thinks he has all the answers. And thus the fool removes himself from others. I don't need others. Why do I need to talk to others? One commentator said the fool is the one who is in love with his own ideas. The conversation that he has with himself throughout the day is the best conversation he has all day. So he does the very opposite of Proverbs 2. Very opposite. He does not make his ear attentive to wisdom. Why? Well, because wisdom resides in himself. He does not incline his heart, the mission control center of his life. He does not incline his heart to understanding. He does the very opposite of Proverbs 22. He does not incline his ear and hear the words of the wise. Again, why? Because there's no one wiser than he is. And thus he does not apply his mind to knowledge. He thinks himself to be both the fountain and the final arbiter of truth. Well, let's apply that proverb then, that principle to the church today. It is the fool who sees no value and no need for Christian community. It is the fool who wants no church leader to explain and apply God's word to them. It is the fool who wants to be his own spiritual authority. It is the fool who wants it to be just him or her and their Bible. And yet, that is not how God has designed the Christian life. Not at all. Turn to Ephesians 4. Ephesians chapter four, again, it will be on the screen. God has given us gifts, but they're gifts that are experienced in community for our sanctification. 
Ephesians 4.11, God has graciously given pastors and teachers, church leaders, Paul is speaking of here. He's speaking of that Christian community. He's given us the community of believers. Why? Verse 12, for the equipping, the maturing, the preparing of the saints for the work of service to the building up of the body of Christ. Again, that's community language. We're built up together. We need one another. Remove yourself from the teaching of the church. Remove yourself from the local community of God's people. Remove yourself from the counsel of others and you become the New Testament version of the Proverbs fool. And you're satisfied with your own wisdom. And in effect, you are snarling at the truth of God. We need one another for those rough edges to be smoothed out. We, we see this and we experience it in marriage, right? I mean, Sarah had so many rough edges that needed to be smoothed out. <laughs> See, those are the things that are not in my notes, and there's a reason why they're not in my notes. (laughs) Continue verse 14. You don't want anybody. You don't need anybody. There's a difference for the one who does need God's people. Verse 14, as a result, we, again, community, we, are no longer to be children tossed here and there by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine. That's what happens when we give ourselves to the body of Christ, the community of God. Our foolish thinking becomes right thinking. We're able to discern God's word and God's ways. In effect, God's people guard us. We're guarded from the trickery of men by the craftiness and deceitful scheming. And what is the result of all of this? We, again, community, we grow up, verse 15, we grow up in all aspects into him who is the head, even Christ. That's sanctification. That's spiritual maturity. That's the result. But notice that passage, it takes the community of God's people. It's not an individual deal. It takes the community of God's people to achieve that end. And so understand the warning then again back to the point when you separate yourself from the people of God, you separate yourself from God's means, from God's means to grow you up in all aspects into him who is the head, even Christ. Separate yourself from God's people. You are left to your own foolish and proud and unsanctifying self. Isolated Christianity leaves you foolish when you think. Warning number three. Warning number three. Beware. Isolated Christianity leaves you powerless when you evangelize. Leaves you powerless when you Evangelize, And we've touched on this many times already in our study in John 13, John 16, John 17. We're going to look at it again at the end of August. It's worth repeating here, though, as a warning, evangelism has been designed to be not an individualized pursuit. It's been designed to be a community effort. 
We know the verses. We know John 13, 35. By this, all men will know that you are my disciples. By what, Jesus? If you have love, we pointed it out, it's not a love for the world primarily. If you have a love for one another, for your fellow believers. Saw this in John 17, Jesus' prayer for unity as a purpose. He prays that they may all be one. Why? So that the world, that unbelieving, hostile world to the gospel may know that the Father sent Christ through our testimony. It's our unity, our fellowship, our community that is the platform from which the gospel is proclaimed. Jesus repeats the prayer in verse 23, prays for us to be perfected in unity. Again, why? So that the world may know that the Father sent him. So the world will know the love the Father has for his Son and for us. Again, we'll look at this in more detail later, but we need to ask ourselves, we need to ask ourselves, have we brought the gospel to our valley? Have we brought the gospel to our valley in the way Christ has called us to do? Or have we gone it all alone? Brought the gospel as isolated evangelists rather than a unified testifying team. Brad House is right. He wrote this, the greatest resource the church has is not is not its technology or its wealth. It's not the million dollar budget we just passed a few weeks ago. That's not the greatest resource. It is the people themselves. Image bearers of God, purchased by the blood of Jesus to be sent together to proclaim the gospel through which they have been redeemed. That's our greatest resource. It's our love for one, it's our community. That's the platform upon which we proclaim the gospel. It's our unity based only on Christ and his cross. It's that unity that gives the world pause in their hatred of Jesus so they can hear then the gospel proclaimed. But, back to the warning, but where there is no Christian community modeling the forgiveness of Jesus, and no Christian unity amongst believers imaging the unity we have with the Trinity, and no brotherly love based upon the Father's love for us and for his Son, where that is lacking, though the Spirit can still change the heart of the believer. That is true. The Spirit can still do that. The warning remains. Isolated Christianity leaves us powerless when we evangelize not standing on the platform that Christ prayed for. Again, we'll look at that in more detail as we wrap up the series. Let's go into warning number four. Warning number four, beware. Isolated Christianity leaves you susceptible to Satan's schemes. Isolated Christianity leaves you susceptible to Satan's schemes. 
We touched on this last week. Let's look at it again. Ephesians chapter 6. Turn there. It will not be on the screen. Ephesians chapter 6. Where we are warned in no uncertain terms that we are engaged in a spiritual battle. A battle far too difficult for us to win on our own because we are at war against an enemy far more powerful than ourselves. Paul describes the battle in verse 12. It is a struggle. The image here is of a wrestling match, a close quarter brawl, a struggle against not flesh and blood, not against any human enemy. We need to be reminded of that. Our struggle is against supernatural powers at work within this evil world system. He lists them out. The rulers, our struggle is against the rulers, the demonic leaders, the powers, the cosmic beings, the world forces of this darkness. Those are terrifying and hostile powers of evil. The supernatural forces. That's a picture of an army. An army of wickedness in the heavenly places in the spiritual realm. That's the war we're engaged in now. It's a battle for holiness. Go back to verse 11. It's the struggle to stand firm against the schemes, the temptations of the devil, the prince of this evil world system. It's a war that will not end until Christ returns in final victory and defeats Satan himself forever. But until that time, though we have been saved by Christ, the conflict persists and it is real. Who's adequate in and of themselves to stand firm against Satan? Anyone here? How, verse 10, how are we to be strong in the Lord given the enemy we face? Again, verse 11, how are we to stand firm against the schemes of the devil? Look at verse 13. How are we to resist in the evil day? Or verse 16, how are we to extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one? How are we to do that? What's our strategy? One strategy is, verses 14 through 17, put on the full armor of God. But just as equally important is what we read in verse 18. We will only win this battle for holiness, verse 18, with all prayer and petition, praying at all times. Our enemy does not grow weary in this battle. We too must not grow weary in coming to the Lord in prayer. With all prayer and petition, petition referring to pleading or begging, we seek what we cannot do on our own. We ask the Lord to grant what only he can give. But now notice the last phrase in verse 18. Who are we to be praying for? Who? Who are we to be pleading on behalf of? Answer, be on the alert with all perseverance and petition for all 
the saints. That's community language. We will not win the battle for holiness alone, mark it. We need one another's prayers. One commentator wrote, in the midst of spiritual warfare, Paul emphasizes the vital importance of prayer. And this is now community intercessory prayer for others. Nuclear wars cannot be won with rifles. That's what we do when we remove ourselves from the community of God. Likewise, satanic wars cannot be won by human energy or in isolation. Thus, Paul has warned the saints to constantly pray and remain alert, but again, for all the saints. So keep this battle imagery in mind when you are tempted, and you will be, when you are tempted to remove yourself from God's people. Living an isolated Christian life is like storming the beaches of Normandy by yourself against an enemy far more powerful than you realize. We need one another's prayers desperately because isolated Christianity leaves you susceptible to Satan's schemes. Which leads directly then into warning number five, and we'll end here. Warning number five, beware. Isolated Christianity leaves you on the precipice of spiritual ruin. Isolated Christianity leaves you on the precipice of spiritual ruin. We're given a glimpse of that in Ephesians 6. It's a glimpse. But we see this warning come into full view in the book of Hebrews, where the writer offers warning after warning to remain faithful to Christ and his gospel. And all of these warnings are given in a community context. It'll be on the screen, Hebrews 2. We, notice the community, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard so that we do not drift away from it. It's a warning. Hebrews 3, take care, brethren, family members, that there not be in any one of you an evil, unbelieving heart that falls away from the living God. Verse 13, but encourage who? One another. Encourage one another day after day. Why? So that none of you will be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. We need one another in this. We're self-deceived far too often. Hebrews 4, let us Let us fear if, while a promise remains of entering his rest, any one of you may seem to have come short of it. Therefore, let us, we're in this together, let us be diligent to enter that rest so that no one, no one of us will fall. Let us together hold fast our confession. Verse 16, let us together draw near to the throne of grace so that we, we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. It's all community language. Hebrews 6, therefore leaving the elementary teaching about 
Christ, let us press on to maturity. These are all calls to community faithfulness that culminate in Hebrews 10, where we read this, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. I just want you to hear how concerned the writer is. The writer of Hebrews knows apostasy is real. He knows that wavering in the faith is a true temptation. So there's an urgency to his words. Be careful. Don't let this happen to you. Right? Do not drift away. Do not fall away. Make sure you're not going to come up short of entering God's rest. But notice how one remains faithful when tempted to leave the faith. How does one remain faithful? And so all of these temptations, first of all, verse 23, we remain faithful by the Lord securing our soul. He preserves us. He who promised is faithful. Verse 23, he who promised is faithful. We are secure because of Christ. Christ holds us. He sends his spirit to seal us. So the preservation of God for his people. But that is not where the writer ends. Yes, the Lord is faithful to secure his own. He will never lose any of his people. But the means in which he will do this is in verse 24. Hebrews 10, 24. Let us, let us consider how to stimulate who? One another to love and good deeds. We remain faithful through our care and concern and relationships with other believers. And note here, let us consider this. This is not only talking about pastors or elders or deacons, ministry leaders, staff. This includes each one of us. Each one of us caring about one another interacting with one another, loving one another, so much so that we stir up one another to love and good deeds. So much so that we do not forsake the assembling together. We're not that rogue Christian. Back to Hebrews 3, we encourage one another so that none of us will be hardened by sin. We need one another. We need the encouragement. We need the prayers. We need the love. We need the stirring up. We need the confrontation when it's appropriate. For our brothers and sisters in Christ, why? Because without it, we teeter on the precipice of spiritual ruin. So I hope you're beginning to see how much we need one another in our spiritual lives how much being an active part of this Christian community matters. And I emphasize active parts. We need one another to bear our burdens, to help us think rightly, to evangelize this valley, to live a life of holiness and to endure in the faith. The Christian life was never meant to be lived alone. The Christian life was never meant to be lived alone. And that is what we'll unpack throughout this summer 
series. We'll look at what a Christian community looks like and then how we each can be a part, an active part, an engaged, selfless part and a member of this body of Christ. Father, uh, you have given us warnings throughout your word for a purpose. And that is to bring conviction where necessary. It is meant at times to jar us, to show us the seriousness of a matter. Lord, in our day, in our culture, our society, we need to hear this warning of Christian isolationism. Pray that you would grant us a repentance of any selfish ways that we cling to. Forgive us, Lord, for putting on masks so that others cannot see who we truly are. Forgive us, Lord, for not giving ourselves to others that you would use these next weeks to teach us how to turn from those sins, how to live in obedience to you, how to live as a true an active family member within the body of Christ. We pray all of this in our Savior's name. Amen.